When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. In death, you face life with a child and a wife who sleepwalks through your dreams into walls. You're a soldier of mercy. You're cold and you curse. He who cannot be trusted must fall. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly. And joining me to talk about No Time to Think from 1978's Street Legal, a particular favorite album among uh, us uh, Bobcats, is uh, author Stephen Hyden. Hi, Stephen. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I, I've been reading, well, we've been exchanging kind of tweets for a long time now, and I'm really happy to finally have you on the show. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. I love the show. And uh, yeah, I, I love to talk about deep cuts from street legal on podcasts. So <laughs> this is a great opportunity for me. I I don't know of any record, I think, that is more beloved by deep cut Dylan fans than street legal, just because I think it's the combination of uh, it was it was, you know, not critically well received when it came out. Uh, you know, it hasn't gotten a whole lot of love on the kind of the bootleg series front. And we could talk about that a little bit more, but it's like, I don't know any Bobcat of a certain level that doesn't love street legal, you know? Yeah. And it's weird in retrospect that it wasn't an album acclaimed in its time, because if you look at it with the benefit of hindsight, it just seems like it slots so well in that procession of, of seventies albums from, you know, planet waves to blood on the tracks to desire the street legal, uh, it, it, it just seems like, oh, it's a, such a, such a natural progression, but you know, it, it really speaks to how I think Dylan in the seventies was this figure that I think a lot of people, like the music critics of the time, they looked at him as like the sixties, uh, sort of Oracle in a way. And they weren't prepared for this record that is so dense <laughs> in a way, you know, and, and I think really personal, I don't think it read as personal in the moment, but, you know, in light of like the Christian rock records that come after it, it really does kind of speak to his state of mind at the time. But, you know, I guess we benefit from that, you know, 40 some years later. Maybe so. I remember reading a, a contemporary review uh, of it and they said people were like, oh, he's got saxophones on his records now. What is he, Bruce Springsteen? I'm like. Wow, you know, like Bruce Bruce Springsteen owned saxophones. I didn't know that. I didn't know that no other musician could have a sax on his record without being like, you know, come on. Jeez. Well, and and like, you know, I was getting ready to uh, talk about this today. I was digging through my library of rock books, and I I dug out the Rolling Stone record guide from 1982, which was like my original textbook of learning about rock music like when i was a teenager in the 90s and uh i just like want to read this a little bit there's a uh two-star review of street legal oh. <laughs> in here and it says it's by dave marsh it says street legal was completely steeped in kabbalah and tarot imagery it's a quasi-mystical odyssey whose purpose seems to be the concealment of dylan's real feelings even when the symbology is penetrated, all the record turns out to be is the manipulation of symbols, which I don't think that's entirely accurate. But like, even if it were, that sounds like an awesome Dylan record to me. <laughs> Dylan yeah. 
<laughs> delving into symbology. This sounds great, you know. But you know, you know, in all fairness to the critics back then, you know, they were experiencing these records in real time. Yeah. It's hard to really know I, I just think that the expectations were different back then. Whereas like we can sit back now and take this in as like a whole body of work and and just feel like, oh wow, like this is the headspace that he was in in seventy seven, seventy eight. How fascinating is this? And we can kind of appreciate it on its own terms, I think easier now than maybe it was when this record actually dropped, you know, in, in real time. Sure, absolutely. And I mean, good Lord, any artist that has blood on the tracks, desire and street legal back to back to back. You're like, that's a career, you know, for most, oh, yeah. most artists. If, if any other artists have produced that level of quality in a row, you would say, Oh my God, they, you know, that, that we, they were a genius. And this is just the, I won't even say midpoint at this point. It's not midpoint. It's like first section. I don't even know. <laughs> you divide his career up. I mean, slices you you have to at this point but uh yeah i mean it said it's 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 a record that when i got it when i was getting into bob i, I didn't know much about it because it wasn't heralded you know it wasn't listed like it was blood on the tracks or, but i loved it immediately it's it's strange sound it's the the as you talk about the the imagery the symbology of it all uh i found it inter- instantly beguiling and i've loved it ever since and i always still put it on like my top five favorite records of his uh, ever made um, I know, I think that the, the cover photo of him is it, that's somewhere in California, I believe, somewhere in Los Angeles. Yeah. And I don't know if that still exists, like if that building and that stairwell is still there. Uh, I hope so. And I mean, good Lord, next time I'm in Los Angeles, I would love to find that spot and just stand there. We <laughs> create the, uh, street legal cover or something. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Bob looking, it might be peak sexy bob too <laughs> bob is looking amazing on the cover of that uh, of street legal and i mean to me like one of the fascinating things about that album is that musically i feel like it's a very accessible record it feels like a in a lot of ways it feels like a sort of fm rock mainstream rock record in terms of the music and then the lyrics i mean i really feel like it's like the densest dylan record since like blonde on blonde i mean some of like the wordiest songs that you know he had written you know i think in a long time and like the song we're going to talk about today is you know the ultimate example of that you know (laughs) just him words upon words metaphors stacked upon (laughs) metaphors uh just like a feast i mean you know like i love nashville skyline i love lay lady lay but i feel like lay lady lay is like Bob for beginners, no time to think is like PhD level Bob. <laughs> it, it, there's so many words in this song; it's so dense. <laughs> you know, you this is not the song you're going to play to turn someone onto Bob. This is like, okay, you've 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 been on the journey for a while. Now you're ready for no time to think. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. this is like okay. <laughs> We got to dive in here. We got to try to make sense of this. Yeah. <laughs> You've handled country pie. Now let's move on to something a little more complex. Okay. Yes. This is an incredibly on a very wordy record. This is a, with a, probably like the wordiest song in a wordy record, but we'll, we'll talk about all that in a moment. But wait, I want to wind back a little and, and find out, Stephen, like, how did you become a fan of Bob's? So I uh, was a teenager in the 90s and I was already a student of rock history at that time i was reading a lot of books watching documentaries and 
doing these things because I was a music fan, but also, you know, and I think I knew this even in the moment that I was, I wanted to be a music critic when I, when I got older. So I was, I was interested in music and I was interested in music writing. And I knew from reading all of this, all the books that I'd read that like Bob Dylan was, was the guy that he was the, the, the one that like everyone was influenced by, uh, in, 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 in that classic rock canon. But he was also the one that I didn't really understand for a very long time. You know, I love the Beatles. I love the Stones, Pink Floyd, Zeppelin, the Who, the Kinks, all that stuff. But Dylan was always someone that was elusive to me for the longest time. And I think it was just because the songs, I, I just wasn't used to songs that would go on for eight or nine minutes hmm. where it was really just a guy, you know, singing over pretty minimalist music and not just like in the acoustic phase, but even like a song like sad eyed lady of the lowlands where, you know, he's going on for about 12 or 13 minutes and like the music, you know, it's sort of this like organ and guitar vamp and there's not a lot of different things going on. And, you know, I was used to, you know, like I loved guns and roses when I was a kid. So I could hear like a song like November rain that went on for 10 minutes I could understand that because there was there were like three guitar solos in that song and mm. all this instrumentation. But but with Bob, it was really about the words and the music was beautiful. But you really had to kind of lock into like like this guy, like what he was doing, and it was very difficult for me to do that. And I kept trying because I knew this guy was important. And then it, it wasn't until like I turned like nineteen. I was in college and something happened. I remember a very a crucial thing for me was getting the real Albert Hall bootleg when it was still a bootleg. There was a cool record store in my town and this guy had it on CD and he, and he burned a cassette copy for me for $10. <laughs> and so that was my introduction. The good old to days. <laughs> yeah. The good old days of that. And I remember the electric side of that record really blew me away and I was so enraptured by the courage of Bob Dylan that he had such conviction to play this music in the face of people booing him. You know, it, it, it took it to another level of not just it being excellent music, which I thought the music was amazing, but it, it was actually courageous. You know, like this is someone, this is like a hero, like, like a superhero, someone you can look up to. And that was really the turning point for me. It was like connecting to the anger of like mid sixties Dylan, hmm. like as a young, cause like when you're a young man of 19, like you're kind of like an angry, you got that angry energy to you. <laughs> and it was like the, the Royal Albert Hall bootleg and like highway 61 revisited was the first studio record that I really connected to. And something clicked at that moment where I just became obsessed with him where, you know, I was, I remember that summer of 1997, I was living, uh, at home. I, I was home from college. It was like the uh, summer between my freshman and sophomore year. So I was working a job, living at home. And like every week I was going to the record store and I was buying like three or four Dylan CDs <laughs> from all different eras. I mean, not really the eighties at that point. It was more like sixties and seventies. Later on, I discovered the genius of the 80s, but it was like 60s and 70s, Dylan. I think I got Infidels and like, oh, mercy. But like, it was mainly 60s and 70s. And 
uh, and then in the fall, Time Out of Mind came out, which was a, another big deal because it was like, oh, this guy isn't just a historical figure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. So, like in the 90s, for a long time, he was like just, it, it was a given that he was done. You know, they gave him a Lifetime Achievement Award at, at the yep. Grammys. I think right. it was a 91. Yep, 91. It was, it was like, and it was like he hadn't even turned 50 yet, which is kind of amazing in retrospect. They gave him a Lifetime Achievement Award a few months shy of his 50th birthday. But it was just assumed that, like, oh, his songwriting, he's 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 dried up. He's he's finished. Then he puts out Time Out of Mind, this amazing record, um, which, in my opinion, still you could put that record up with anything he's ever done i it's an amazing record so i feel like i got into my dylan phase at the exact right time because it was like i love all of a sudden it just clicked with me anything he did i just got instinctually and then he put out this new record that was amazing and it was like wow he's not just an oldies act he's as good as anybody out right now and uh i don't know i in a way, I feel like this all ties to the song I picked to talk to you today because with Dylan, you know, uh, I've learned over the years to never make a confident proclamation about a record that I don't understand by Bob <laughs> Dylan, you know, and then maybe I'm more sensitive about this because I'm a music critic and I, you know, I, I type my opinions and I post them and people can see them, but I've realized that the Dylan record that you don't like right now, it's going to be your favorite Dylan record in about 10 years, <laughs> you know? So like, like the standard, like, like, so like triplicate, for instance, that's going to probably be my favorite Dylan record in like 2030, you know? Cause <laughs> even if I'm like right now for me yet, but, but maybe so, but it's like, but you know, it, you, you never want to dismiss a Dylan album because nope. there's yep. so many instances in my time of listening to him where, um, I felt like, oh, I don't really like that record. And then five, ten years later, I'm like, this record is great. It's so good. And, you know, Street Legal, I guess, is... It's funny how you were talking about it before, because I, I don't know how that record is received in, like, the larger consciousness, but it definitely feels like, in, like, Dylan circles, that's an acknowledged masterpiece, as it should be. Um But for the longest time, like I remember like when I was first reading about Dylan, and I just read that excerpt from the Rolling Stone record guide. It was just a given that that was not a good record. Hmm. And now it seems that religious to say that that's not a great record. You know, it's, you don't really even understand like how people felt that way. I, I've heard people say that the, that the mix wasn't very good. Right. On no, the original. Right. That, sure. Sure. But like I have a cassette copy, you know, I listen to cassettes a lot these days. I have a cassette copy from you know, presumably like the late seventies, early eighties. I think that sounds great. I don't really understand the mix arguments. I don't know. I this is a long uh, answer to your question, but I don't know. I I I just feel like there's so many instances with Bob where if you're going to dismiss something. You got to do it in a qualified way or a respectful way because you're going to eat your words, you know, in like five to 10 years. I think that, so like, I know for me, like, I will never dismiss anything he does outright. You know, I, I'll even hear like Empire, you know, like I love Empire Burlesque at this point. Like, <laughs> I, like I feel like I can defend any Bob Dylan album uh, pretty much at this point. But yeah, Street Legal for sure, I think is 
such a to me such a clearly great record yeah i don't i mean again that's not the song we're here to talk about but how anyone could hear where are you tonight journey through dark heat and and say that he's hiding his emotions i don't know what 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 are you hearing i don't know what you're talking about right well and you know and even you know no time to think i think is a song that to me really speaks to his uh state of mind at the time but you know the thing with dylan is that he's on a journey i feel like all the records are connected and maybe the record like a record that he puts out in the moment it doesn't really make sense until you hear the next two or three albums mm-hmm. and then and then you're kind of fully prepared to understand where this guy was at and i feel like definitely in light of the christian albums street legal uh has uh you know, you know the sort of like emotional transparency of it i think really becomes much more apparent to me it really feels like a a record that someone makes when they're looking for answers. Oh, completely. You know? yes. and, but, but like at this moment in time, they, there's no clarity at all in their life. You oh, know? I, yes. And, and, you know, and, and even going back to that Rolling Stone thing, talking about symbology and tarot imagery and all that stuff. I think that speaks to that, you know, that this is a guy who's maybe flailing a little bit in the moment. Uh, and, but because it's Bob Dylan and because he's a genius, the flailing is riveting and it's fascinating <laughs> yeah. and he makes great art right. out of it. Right. You know, most of us, when we're flailing, it just sounds like flailing. <laughs> it's not yeah. anything interesting. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, he's I mean, writing these like incredibly poetic lyrics, you know, I mean, I think the thing with Dylan and street legal era, and it's certainly true of no time to think, which we'll dive into, but it's almost like he has all of this great imagery that doesn't to, that doesn't connect to something uh sort of linear or literal you know it's sort of all out and going all over the place um which if you want something linear might be frustrating but if you understand that this is like an expression of confusion it becomes like oh wow like this is like one of the best expressions of confusion I've ever heard, you know, like that's clearly that's part of the brilliance of it. Yeah. The guy at the end of street legal is totally emotionally ready for that cross being thrown onto his (laughs) concert, you know, on the stage and picking it up and putting it in his pocket. I mean, that's a guy who's ready for that. So before we get to the song, there's one thing I do want to ask you about, you know, writing as, as a music critic, because you're talking about going back and listening to records later on. Do you do that? In a professional sense, I'm sure you do it and just in your, in your personal life. You dig out a record you haven't listened to in a bunch of years and you go, oh, wow, this is better or maybe it's worse. And, but it, but as a, as a, like as a professional critic, do you ever kind of make some sort of public pronouncement a little of like, oh, that's very highfalutin what I just said. But like, do you ever kind of go and say, Hey, you know what? I reviewed X seven years ago and I just dug it out again. And you know what? It's, uh, it's not what I thought it was. Do you ever kind of do that? Yeah. I mean, you know, the thing I'm most interested in as a critic and also just as a music fan is discographies i love looking at a body of work and thinking about how like particular albums fit in the overall arc of someone's career like i i love thinking about that as a writer i love thinking about that as a fan so i think that will always you know sort of influence you in terms of taking an empathetic position 
on a particular album, you know, where like to me saying like this is bad or good, it's not as interesting as thinking like, well, what does this album like or or how does al- how does this album fit in someone's career? You know, like that to me is more interesting than saying like, oh, this sucks or it's great. Mm-hmm. You know, it kind of moves beyond that sort of hot or not qualitative uh, uh, judgment on, on, a, on a on a particular record, and it and it moves into a more interesting position of being like, well, where was this person at when they made this record, and like, how does that inform what they did after and and what led up to it? You know, and and that to me is like really interesting. And Bob Dylan is, I think, the ultimate sort of body of work. You know, like because mm-hmm. he he did so many different things. He's obviously been productive longer than anyone, certainly in like rock music. You know, there's really no equivalent to him in rock music in terms of someone who's been creative for as long. And you know, if you factor in his live work you know, then it just expands exponentially, you know? Um, But, you know, there's very few people that put out a great record in like 1962 and put out a great record in 2020. There's really no (laughs) one in rock music who's done that. I mean, you really have to look at someone like Miles Davis. Mm -hmm. If you're going to compare him to anybody. I mean, to me, Miles Davis is really the only parallel to, to Dylan in this era. You know, um, but even Miles didn't last as long as Bob and Bob is still going, mm-hmm. obviously. So for someone like me, who's interested in discographies and career arcs, Dylan is like the ultimate person to look yeah. at and to study uh, because there's so many different periods. There's so many different um, eras that he's lived through and like worked through. And it, I think it makes it, um, you know, I think that's why there's so much revisionism with Bob. It's like, if you look at the eighties, for instance, I mean, that's not the most obvious example of people reevaluating his work, you know, clearly in the moment, people hearing a record like Empire Burlesque or Down in the Groove or something, if you were comparing it to other records that, that were coming out at the time, it was very easy to dismiss those albums. But, you know, having the hindsight of like 30 some years, um, it's kind of fascinating to see how he navigated those periods mm-hmm. and how he survived it. Because so many other others of his generation didn't like artistically survive it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I, to me, there's just so many layers with Bob. It's like multiple. It's like infinite layers with him. <laughs> it, it, it never gets boring listening to his body of work. You know, your, your comment about the discography makes me think of, uh, of somebody, I don't know, hadn't really occurred to me consciously until now, but um, one of the nice things about, I mean, obviously Bob Dylan.com as a website is an amazing resource and I pull lyrics from it and it's great to the set list and it's great to have all this information in one place. And, you know, I'm old enough to remember being a Bob fan in the nineties pre-internet where that stuff wasn't, you know, there was expecting rain you know, or the Bob links, but that was about it. But one of the things that's nice is, I mean, it's one thing to see his list of records as a text list. That's impressive enough. But when you go to the albums page and you just see all the records with their sleeves in one big mosaic, 
it to me there's the enormity of it hits you when you see them all like that you know presented in that way you're like wow look at this look at the look at the path this guy's taken here's bob dylan in 1962 and now we're up to you know now we're up to rough and rowdy like you just look at the enormity of it and you're like it's to me i mean again i think maybe because my graphic design background i think visually and a lot but to me there's something powerful about just seeing the sleeves all next to each other in one giant sort of stained glass window of bob's work uh it just to me has an extra heft to it and if there was some way to also juxtapose all those album covers against other albums that came out at the time that his records came out. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Like where, uh, you know, if you talk about like free wheel and like what, like what was coming out in 1962, I'm just trying to think of like major. I mean, that was like before the first Beatles record came out. Yeah. A lot of bubblegum pop in 1962, you know, yeah, like, like Bob is writing, he's putting out hard rain before, uh, the first Beatles album, right. and that uh, you know, like like he predates the Beatles. He predates Neil Young. He predates Joni Mitchell. He predates like all of these greats. And those artists, as great as they are, they have their peaks and valleys. And then Bob just still keeps going. You know, <laughs> like they're not putting out. You know, I love Paul McCartney. I love Neil Young, but they're not putting out rough and rowdy ways in 2020. You know, <laughs> like he's still doing that. And, and then. Again, if you dig into uh, the live uh, material that he's doing, like all, you know, the uh, never ending tour and all that. I mean, like I do a, uh, I've, I've been hosting a Grateful Dead podcast for the last few years. Like we've gone through all the uh, Dick's Picks volumes for your listeners out there who aren't familiar with the dead. There was this series of live recordings that the Grateful Dead put out um, in the 90s and 2000s. They were called Dick's Picks. There's 36 volumes. Uh, and we're almost <laughs> done with that show now. But like the, you know, the, the Grateful Dead with Jerry Garcia, 65 to 95, 30 years. The never ending tour has lasted longer than that. You know, <laughs> just to put that in perspective, you know, that's like why, like when people say, Oh, this person's better than Bob, you know, like, th- like Leonard Cohen's better than Bob or Joni Mitchell's better than Bob. And, and I'm always like, okay, that might be true for like a specific era, but like from 62 to like 2022, no, you're not because <laughs> this guy just keeps going. And, and again, I, I can't think of, it's not just music. I mean, any, you know, sort of arena of art. Like Martin Scorsese's been making great movies for a long time. Scorsese got going in the early seventies. Dylan had if Dylan had died before Scorsese's first great movie, Mean Streets, in seventy three, he'd already be a legend. Right. You know, he had already <laughs> had like a you know a good ten years of great material. You know, there's just no standard that you can really apply to Dylan that. You know, uh, he's his own standard, really, mm-hmm. and uh, it—it's it, impossible to wrap your mind around, like how much music this guy has made. I—I I don't know. I—it's it, incredible. I, everyone listening to the show already knows this. They're already Dylan fans, but it—it it, it bears repeating. This guy's output is just unbelievable. Well, yeah, it was funny when you were talking about at the beginning about when you got into him in the mid nineties, which compared in by the standard of Bob's career was a, was a quiet period for him. 
Yeah. Again, by that standard. But then you say, yeah, well, Larry, what did he do in the early to mid nineties? Well, he put out two pretty good folk records, a greatest hits compilation, a live record, and he did like a hundred concerts a year. I mean, yeah, like, and, that's and like, like for him. That's a quiet period. And like some really great never ending tour years. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, it's amazing, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, you know, like when I was coming to Dylan in the nineties, the conventional wisdom was that he was done, right. you know, that he wasn't going to make great records anymore. I mean, good as I've been to you and world gone wrong, those folk records you reference, I think are like damn good records. I love those records, love but like, they're, yeah. but you know, he wasn't writing songs. And yeah. I think even in Dylan's own mind, it kind of, I think he maybe felt like, ah, uh, maybe I'm done writing songs. And and again, like you know, it blows my mind that they gave him a lifetime achievement award before he turned fifty, <laughs> you know, which is like an amazing thing to do. And it is like they're putting him on an ice floe and just put, you know, pushing him out into the ocean. Right. And um, I think there was this idea that he's just going to be this oldies act, and 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 that's it. And time out of mind was um, this record. That just, I think, blew a lot of people away. And that was the beginning of like every Dylan record being an event. And, and now I, I feel like in my lifetime, and, and that this coincides with me being a music critic, like every Dylan record has been an event. Yep. You know, like where, um, and it's not just Dylan fans, like young, uh, people who are into music also care about it like if, if you go on pitchfork like like pitchfork.com like they are reviewing new dylan records like bob dylan is a singer songwriter in his 20s you know and they're taking it that seriously which there's nobody even close to him and his cohort that receives that same kind of attention or you know that level of seriousness from people that um, were born in the you know I was born in the seventies, but you know people born in the eighties and nineties, you know, now treat him with that level of respect and reverence. Oh yeah, I mean, just a couple of days ago, there was that interview with uh, Ira Ingber that dropped, and like there was this you know kind of offhand reference he makes to other stuff that's been recorded that's going to come out soon, and all of a sudden everybody on like Dylan Twitter was like, oh, is that a new record? Is that what that means? <laughs> they were parsing right. the language down to the syllable, you know, and it's, I, I don't mean to make fun of it. I was doing it too. It's, but that's, that's, that's who we are. You know, we think the every, even the whisper of something new, it's immediately sets everybody spinning, you know, <laughs> or, amazing. you know, or even, Oh, he recorded, you know, he played this great version of Key West, you know, on the current tour and you'll see that circulate you know and um i mean to go back to the to the triplicate reference it's like i i appreciate triplicate because i feel like that set the table for his amazing vocals and like the last you know i mean certainly on uh rough and ruddy ways but like i saw him last time i saw dylan live was in 2019 it was the september of 2019 and his his voice was, was, was it's the best I've ever heard it, you know. And, I, and the, my first Dylan show was in 1999, and uh, I haven't seen him post pandemic. I've heard bootlegs where he sounds amazing. Yep. Bob had the uh, 
He had the audacity to play a show. He played, so I live in Minneapolis. He played in Milwaukee. It was the first show post pandemic. He played it on my daughter's birthday. So I couldn't go. And he hasn't been close to me ever since. So I have not seen post pandemic Bob yet. I know people that have. And I was going, I thought he was maybe coming to the Midwest in uh, the fall, but he's going to Europe now. It's like, Jesus Christ, Bob. Come to Minnesota, man. I live in Minnesota. I live, you know, what, maybe two hours from Hibbing? You know, right. two and a half you hours think, from Duluth? Yeah. I live in the cradle of Bob Dylan, you know, sort of uh, mythology here. Play fucking Minnesota, my friend. What the hell is going on here? Hopefully 2023, he'll come through. Just ignoring the Midwest, Bob. Just uh, stabbing me in the heart here. With, I'm sure uh, he'll swing Desperately. Back. Desperately want to see him, but yeah, that 2019 gig was was fantastic, and yeah, his vocals lately have just been. Again, I think it's the best he's sounded since I don't know when. Absolutely, absolutely. So, well, okay, I think we just set the record for the longest preamble. Uh, <laughs> although I don't like to think of this part as the preamble, I just like it's part of the conversation. But I do think this is the longest we've gone on any show before we got to the actual song that we're going to talk about. And there's other things I want to ask you about, but I do want to get to the song at some point. Um, so we said no, no time to think. As you said, this is a wor- the, probably the wordiest song on a wordy record. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I quoted just the first verse and then we've got this, the, uh, this sort of chorus, which is going to be changing uh each time with these different terms you've got the backup singer singing along with bob where he says the, it's the second verse is loneliness tenderness high society notoriety you fight for the throne and you travel alone unknown as you slowly sink and there's no time to think now again i'm not going to quote the entire song because it's so long uh we'll go through it you know bit by bit here but like why did you want to talk about this one you said it was kind of tied into your whole fandom so wh- why did you want to talk about this one yeah, so, you know, I was talking earlier about, like, when I was a teenager trying to get into Bob Dylan and just the challenge of Bob, because I'd never heard, you know, someone just spout all of these lyrics over, you know, fairly minimalist instrumentation for, like, eight or nine minutes. You know, like a song like It's All Right, Ma, or Gates of Eden, or said I, Lady Lowlands or Desolation Row. It was just very difficult for me to wrap my head around when I, when I was 15, 16 years old. And then at some point it just clicked and I, I loved it. But with the street legal record, no time to think was like the dead zone for me for a long time. Like this was a song I, I did not get. And this was, you know, like many years after I had become a Dylan obsessive and, you know, could felt like I could handle anything. And I love street legal, but like, this was like the one song I was like, this seems like so dense and wordy and uh <laughs> musically monotonous and I, yeah it's I, the I, same da, 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 yeah. for nine minutes <laughs> yeah and i felt like i can't i don't get this song at all like i you know i i want to get to uh you know baby stop crying i think is the next track on the record i was like i will skip i'll skip ahead to that song and get you know senior and there's so much other stuff on this record that i that's easier for me to get and I'll just skip over no time to think. But the fact that I didn't get this song, it just became like an obsession for me in a way that was similar to me being obsessed with getting into Dylan as a teenager. It was like, well, I get all these other songs, 
but I don't get this song. And it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to decipher this song. And, you know, I'm not the kind of person who normally will listen to a Dylan song with like a lyric sheet in front of me. Like I have the Dylan book with, with all the lyrics in it, but I don't, normally like to listen to a song and look at the lyrics i feel like the lyrics are part of the song i don't think that lyrics have to work on the page in order to work musically Mm -hmm. it's like a bass part or a drum part you should just be able to appreciate it as you know sort of the whole of the song but this was a song that i did listen to with my dylan lyrics 62 to 85 book in front of me i was like oh i had that one that big ugly gray cover I remember yes that. exactly i have it on my shelf i can see it right now from where i'm sitting <laughs> it's hideous um, cover. <laughs> and i'm like i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm this song I, i'm gonna wrestle it like a like a mountain lion you know I, i'm gonna <laughs> figure this song out you will not defeat me no time to think because i really think that no time to think you know, I, I joked about this earlier about this being a phd level song i really do think that this is like one of the more challenging songs in uh his discography just because of how long it is how many verses there are i think there's like 18 verses or something like that (laughs) uh and and it's fairly minimalist musically um but you know over time i just i just really fixated on the song and it really became a song that like i honestly loved and you know, we were talking earlier about how Street Legal in general, I think, is this record that, you know, obviously came out of like a fairly dark period of Dylan's life. He's going through a divorce. You know, he was approaching 40. You know, there were, there were probably, you know, sort of substance abuse issues, you know, lingering from like the Rolling Thunder era. Uh, you know, seems like maybe he was looking for some sense of direction. And this song, I feel like over time, to me, if I, you know, if I'm going to interpret this song, I feel like it, it's a song about, I feel like it's Dylan's attempt to replicate the sort of daily mind wandering that we all go through. This, you know, cause none of us think in a linear fashion. Our brains are always firing off in many different directions. There's always many different threads. We're focused on what, like, whatever the task at hand is, but then you've got something in the back of your mind. Then you got like some like weird thought that just sort of jumps in there and takes over for a second. And then you're thinking about something else. And I feel like this song, it replicates that experience in a very interesting way because I feel like it, this song, it, it changes the subject. Sometimes in the middle of the verse, <laughs> you know, certainly from verse to verse, but like, even in like in the middle of the verse, I feel like it changes the subject constantly, but there's always this feeling of like, sort of trying to make sense of what it means to be alive. I think it's interesting that like he uses the word mortality twice in this song. It's like the one word that he uses twice. Hmm. I don't think I've ever and, noticed that. Yeah, like there, you know. Yeah, like you're he right. Says, he does. Yeah, he says Paradise China doll mortality, China yeah. doll alcohol duality mortality. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, and there's like all these like sort of big ticket concepts bumping up against each other, and in the end, he just concludes that there's no time to think. And I feel like, you know, this is a guy whose whose brain is operating, you know, 120 miles an hour. He can't slow down. 
and he's looking for some sense of clarity, you know, which points to the Christian period. But this song is about like a total lack of clarity, mm. you know, and, and so the chaotic nature of this song, like the fact that I couldn't understand it for the longest time, like that became like the bug became the feature. The fact that this song doesn't make any goddamn sense to me, (laughs) which it doesn't, even though there's so many amazing lines in this song. I think there's like a lot of just great poetic imagery in this song. But like, if you are trying to make heads or tails of it, good luck. It it doesn't make any goddamn sense. But I, I think I realized over time that that, that's the point. Like it's not supposed to make sense. It's, it's supposed to, you know, sort of express this idea of, total confusion and you know sort of mental fog and um i think it just does it so brilliantly in that way so that that is like what i love about this song yeah i uh like kind of what you were saying earlier about um you know something doesn't work for you at a a moment and then you know five years later it's like whoa now it works for me um isis was a song that when i first heard it I didn't understand it. I had no idea what it was about. You know, I understood it as a story, but I couldn't understand what he was really getting at. And then, you know, I got older and I was, Oh, okay. It's, it's about, and even though he literally says at one point, it's about marriage. It's a song about marriage. It's a song about, you know, uh, fidelity. It's a song about, you know, how you change as a person and then you come back and then, you know, and I kind of feel like structurally, this song, I, I get, as much as I hate to say any Dylan song is a combination of other songs because it's kind of reductive, but I feel like thematically it's ISIS with structurally it's I want you and that I want you all the verses is all this jumble of imagery, you know, and it, none of it makes any real literal sense. The, you know, the organ grinder or whatever, stuff like that, the guilty undertaker size, but then the, the chorus is straightforward i want you i want you so bad you know it's cutting through all of the craziness that he's trying to get across to this person but then structurally to me it's like as much as isis is about marriage this is about to me divorce this is about the rending of a relationship and as you say the utter confusion the narrator is feeling and it's overwhelming and it's you know by the fact that in the in the 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 choruses it's literally covering all ground of human endeavor i mean it's like at one point they they sing reality the word reality once you've included the word reality in your song that covers everything i mean that's it you know and so that to me is like it's it is meant to be confusing it is meant to be just a complete jumble of of imagery and then it's paired up with a vocal that to me is really tricky really really tricky because it's like i I hear like on where are you tonight that's a desperate like i hear a desperate man singing in that song we better talk this over one of my favorites is this kind of quesera resigned kind of vocal but this has got it's depressed but it's also kind of funny in the way he sings it and the, the when he gets to the line about um, judges will haunt you. The country priestess will want you. Her worst is better than best. I've seen all these decoys through a set of deep turquoise eyes, and I feel so depressed. First of all, what an amazing rhyme scheme of decoys with turquoise. But then, 
and just the way he sings, and I feel so depressed. Like it, there's like a humor to it, even though it sounds so incredibly sad. And how he is able to put that across simultaneously to me is just is is unreal. Yeah, it's funny that you bring up Isis because I mean that's one of my favorite Dylan songs. Which everyone—that's one of everybody. Like I don't know anybody who doesn't like Isis, but like that song actually does feel coherent to me because yeah to me there that's just like a great like adventure story in that yep. song and you can read it you can enjoy that song on a surface level just as like a fun story song and then there's the subtext of it that you're talking about like with the marriage and all that kind of stuff but to me isis you can just totally appreciate it as this like oh you're going into the tomb and it's like this indiana jones type narrative to that song (laughs) which which is great um which i don't think no time to think has but like no time to think to me it does feel the most like a desire song on street legal i guess maybe just because there's like a violin on it you know that that's like the obvious thing but it kind of has that gypsy feeling left over from rolling thunder and desire that is on uh, street legal which i think street legal for the most part feels more like a late 70s almost like radio rock record to me like musically like Mm. you can you can link it to like you mentioned springsteen or seeger uh you know more than you could his stuff in the mid 70s which is one of the other reasons like why i really like this record um but yeah the comedic aspect is is funny i always laugh like when he sings like the socialism hypnotism patriotism materialism just like linking all the isms you know <laughs> right. like by that point the song's like been going on for like a long time and it's sort of like, <laughs> like you know socialism you know i was kind of laugh at that part um but yeah you know it, it, i was reading uh clinton halen before getting on with you clinton halen the dark prince of uh of dylanologists <laughs> as that, i like to call him a good, uh, good way of <laughs> good way of describing it yes and he he compared this song to ronaldo and clara which i thought was like actually like a like a pretty astute comparison you know really describing this as like a dream type mm. song mm. and it really does have a dream logic to it because again like you're you're just leaping between so many different things i mean like there's that line like where he says uh in the federal city uh you've been blown and shown pity blown and show pity in secret for pieces of change the empress attracts you but oppression distracts you and it makes you feel violent and strange like i i have no idea like you know you've got the federal city you have the empress here you know he's introducing so many different characters and settings that like don't carry over to the next verse you know right yeah. where yeah the emperor shows up and then like okay it's gone. gone and then in the next verse you know like we're talking about you know your conscience betrayed you when some tyrant white laid you and blah 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 uh like we laid you um like you you are never allowed to sort of settle into a narrative or established set of imagery that's going to carry you forth through the entire song. It's almost like Bob had all of these lyrics that were like the beginning of songs 
that he just put into this song. It's mm-hmm. like a mega mix of like setups for songs, <laughs> but they're all in this one song, you know? So like you're here and then you're somewhere else and then you're here and then you're somewhere else. And it's very, um, you know, it, there's a sense of dislocation with the song. It's very disorienting. Like if you're trying to settle in and experience this, like on a linear level, I think even by Bob Dylan standards, like this song, it does not let you get comfortable at all, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and that's part of what's challenging about it. But again, I do think that there's a method to the madness. I, 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 prefer to believe that there's an intentionality here that the feeling of of uh you know disorientation that you feel as a listener is part of the point of the song that again it ties to that overall message in the in in the title like no time to think mm-hmm. there's no time to uh sort of comprehend what's happening to you or to contextualize it, you know, that these are all things that are happening and it doesn't seem like there's any rhyme or reason to it. And if you want to integrate that into Bob's life at the time, you know, it does seem like that speaks to his state of mind in 77, 78, you know, that he probably did feel like I don't have any time to think, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I don't really know where I'm at. And I'm looking for some clarity here and which is going to come because someone throws a crucifix at him and right. like Phoenix, Arizona right. or wherever it was. Yep. Um, but yeah, I, th- that's what I hear when I hear this song. I hear a very confused guy trying to make sense of where his world was at at that moment. I was going to skip over this because I don't know, but now that you've mentioned the line, I'm really kind of fascinated as to whether you took this the way I always took it. The line where he says in the federal city, you've been blown and shown pity. Uh, When you, when you, when he sings, you've been blown. I mean, how do you take that? Do you take that as like a literal, like he's been serviced sexually (laughs) or, or is it more in a macro sense of like, you've been kind of blown off or you've been kind of, I always took it as that it's, he means it literally because again, the next line is in secret for pieces of change, which oh. sounds like you're consorting with a prostitute for pieces of change in secret, you know, like a, in a, in a dark hotel room or a dark alley. And also I think street legal in some instances is his most, um, like kind of sexually explicit record. I mean, in, in where are you tonight? He talks about juice running down his leg. You know, right. which I remember hearing that and be like, whoa, like that really? They could say that in 1978 or whatever. Well, I, again, uh, this is such pony a pony too is like so. Yeah. Horny. That's oh, like the God, horniest totally. Bob Dylan song. Yeah. So no, I mean, a... I, hate, I hate to be so, so fixed on this point, but do you feel like when he's saying you've been blown, he's, that's literally what he's talking about? You know, I mean, as much as you could be confident in any interpretation, right. you know, obviously these, the worry, the reason why these songs are so rich is that you can, interpret them a hundred different ways i mean yeah i mean definitely you've been blown evokes it has a sexual connotation there that i feel like bob would have been aware of i don't know if he meant it that way exactly or if he meant it in, in sort of like a broader sense of just being uh, you know, defiled, you know, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe not that direct. I, I love the word or whatever. 
Yeah, I love the line in the song where he says, uh, I, I'd have paid off the traitor and killed him much later. Oh, but love that's that. just the way that I am. You know, like the way which, he sings that line, John, that's just the way that I am, which is like, <laughs> it, it, that kind of like reminds me of idiot wind a little bit, you know, like <laughs> just like the violence of that line, but it's also very offhanded and, uh, under, you know, sort of, uh, so like the casual violence of that reminds me of like, like an idiot wind type <laughs> song. Um, yeah, I mean, again, like this, there's so much in this song that it it hints at like a, a lifestyle that he must have felt at the time was like not proper for for him you know mm. like again his marriage is falling apart he had just come off like i you know i mean he was he hadn't come off of touring he was touring a lot in this yep. time you know you had the tour 74 rolling thunder and then you have like that long 78 tour and uh I just wonder if he was feeling like a little guilty about the decadent seventies rock mm. star lifestyle. There's that line, you've murdered your vanity, buried your sanity for pleasure. You must not resist. Lovers obey you, but they cannot sway you. They're not even sure you exist. You know, there's like a thing there where it's almost like it's like you're invisible, you know, like mm-hmm. you kind of move in and out of these pleasurable situations but like nothing is really real you know and look everyone likes the dime store you know be the dime store psychologist with bob but there does seem to be things like in this song that kind of point to a guy who's not very happy in his life Mm -hmm. and feels like it's a little out of control and i just want some structure but i don't know how to find it um and this song, it just feels like an expression of that to me. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I've mentioned this on, on other episodes about like, sometimes it, it, I'm reminded of the idea that like that Bob Dylan as a person has never had a job in his life. Right. He's never <laughs> right. had a job. He's never, I mean, he, you know, he worked supposedly in his father's hardware store when he was a kid, but that doesn't really count. But I mean, basically since he became what we would consider a young adult, He's never had a job in his life ever, ever. And imagine how different that is. And of course, to people like us, or maybe I want to speak for you, but, but like myself who have toiled away at jobs that we don't like to pay the bills, you, that's incredibly envious. You know, you're like, wow, you know, like, oh my God, what that would be like to have your whole life to not have a boss. But at the same time, you're like, well, but maybe for some people, that lack of structure can be really frightening. And, you know, when you have everything, when you have every choice in front of you, it might be hard to decide what to do the right thing. And then, you know, believe me, I'd still like to try it, but, uh, and give it a shot. But at the same time, I could see that if you have everything available to you, you could get frozen into to trying to figure out what is the right step to take. Now, Bob seems he's never been terribly afraid to make a mistake. You know, he tries these things and if it works, he, and really digs in and even sometimes even if it doesn't work he digs right in but i could see maybe for some people that would be paralyzing well to have everything in front of you like that and not have any structure to, to the you know any structure uh imposed on you at all to try and follow well i mean look at bob look at his life in the last 35 some years 
you know, the never ending tour era. When you're on the road, you have a tour manager who. Right. There's structure is, there, right? Yeah. Yeah. You're strictly scheduling every aspect of the day. I got to be here and, by eight. Yep, yep. Exactly. And I'm sure that's part of the appeal of it. You know, Probably. That you, that you, you know, that's the equivalent for him of going to an office. Right. You know, when <laughs> right? we all yeah, go to an sure. office, that's the closest that as a rock star you're going to have to going to an office. He doesn't need to do that. You know, to me, that's that must feed some uh yeah i mean obviously he likes to perform and and that's a big part of his art but i'm sure and again being the dime store psychologist with bob but the structure of being on the road i mean i i think for a lot of musicians you know like once you get off the road then life gets a little scary Mm -hmm. you know because what do you do with your day Right. But if you're on the road, right. you know, you've got someone there who is making sure that you're doing all the things you need to do. You got a schedule, you have a task at the end of the day that you have to accomplish. We got to do a sound check. We got to, you know, that yeah, you got to yeah. perform a show. And, um, so, you know, I'm, I'm sure that's part of the appeal of that for him. Uh, because you're right. I mean, this is a guy that's been famous, you know, really since like, I mean, I mean, 60 years. Famous. Yeah, I mean, really 60, 60 years. 60 I mean, years. I mean, he wasn't necessarily famous in 62, but like, you know, like by the mid 60s, he was like pretty well known. Yeah. And having kids. Um, and there's so really like for most of his life, he's been on, been in the public eye and one of the most famous people in the world and pretty, yeah. pretty, uh, a pretty distinctive looking person. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yes. so yeah, I, uh, but I'm sure for him, it's like, okay, whatever the regular person equivalent is of going to the office or, you know, being a, being a mechanic and working on a car. Mm-hmm. And that's how you feel like oh, I, I, I fixed this car today and that was my task. And I feel like I did something, you know, for Bob, I'm sure that's why he wants to go on the road. You, mm-hmm. you have your task and you have a, you, you have your purpose and in your structure that satisfies that human need that we all have, I think for purpose and meaning mm-hmm. in our lives. Yeah. I mean, in between he dashes off some chapters of the book of the philosophy of music book and does right. it makes it makes a wrought iron fence or something and make, does some drawings. Does some Which, charcoal. <laughs> by the way, I, I got to say to Bob, you know, I don't appreciate him writing music criticism because you're already a <laughs> singer songwriter. You're a former uh, I do never you really, thought of it that way. Do you really have to do music criticism too? Because I know this book is going to be amazing. I mean, you know, just based on Chronicle. I mean, Chronicles and like his radio show. He's a very insightful commenter on music. I obviously like want to read what he has to say about music, but I'm also like, dude, you are undermining my career. Music <laughs> criticism is hard enough to, to make money at this. Just stay in your lane. You're my working friend. my side of the street, Dylan. Exactly. What are you doing over there? You want me? So, so can I make forty mind-blowing albums? Then should I? Should I go in your lane? Uh, I never thought of it that way, but yeah, I can imagine. You know, it's yes, it would. You're only allowed to be good at a couple things, Bob. You're already, you're already like one of the. You're already the greatest rocker, singer, songwriter, etc., etc. There ever was. Don't be the greatest music critic too. It, it would be it would be like he decides to announce that he's going to do a podcast about his own work, and it, it would, would be just, great. 
I, I mean, it would be an amazing show, but it would obliterate all the other shows. Exactly. <laughs> nobody's going to listen to the, who cares what this idiot from New Jersey thinks when Bob Dylan is doing his episode on No Time to Think. So, it's, yeah. It would just like be Bob. dropping a nuclear bomb on the rest of these podcasts. Bob, we know you're a genius. You sold your catalog for hundreds of millions of dollars. You got a lot of money. Let the rest of us eat here, okay? <laughs> can we can can we just like talk about how great you are? You don't have to like step in and uh demonstrate how insightful you are commenting on records. It just makes it harder for the rest of us. That's all I'm asking. <laughs> Little mercy, Bob. A little bit of mercy <laughs> for the rest of us. Use promo code Dylan to get ten percent off your your HelloFresh order. Mm-hmm. Like, oh Lord, oh Lord. So <laughs> And I'm, I'm sorry, Stephen. I didn't really think about that. I didn't even mean to bring the book up. It's well, that's all right. I'm, 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 I mean, I'm very excited to read it, and Me I'm too. sure I'll, I'm sure I'll feel like quitting yeah. my job <laughs> after I read it because Bob will just be super insightful. But uh, uh, my kid, my kids need to eat, so I'll, yeah. I'll, 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 I'll Bob, soldier on regardless. Food out of my kid's mouth, Bob. What yeah, you exactly. Doing? You know. Um. So anyway, so regarding uh, no time to think. Uh, again, it, it's so easy to kind of veer in in and out of the song when you're discussing it because, as you say, it it had not unlike ISIS, it has no real structure. So it is kind of any verse could kind of appear anywhere else at any point for the right. you know. Generally, uh, I do notice um, the one there's there's a verse: paradise, sacrifice, mortality, reality. But the magician is quicker, and his game is much thicker than blood, and blacker than ink. Uh, you know, here he's saying he's mentioning a, magi- a magician. And then a magician shows up in We Better Talk This Over. He says, I wish I was a magician in right. that song. And again, it's like we know that he likes to do that. He likes to interpose lines. You know, he writes a line and puts it in this song and then realizes, no, 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 it's better in this other song, which again, as someone who's never written a song to me, is just it's incomprehensible that you could write something and be able to plug it into different songs and it would sort of work. Um when he says the warlords of sorrow and queens of tomorrow will offer their heads for a prayer. You can't find a salvation. You have no expectations, any time, any place, anywhere. That feels like a verse that could have been dropped into um, changing of the guards. Right. Warlords of sorrow. They feel like that's going to, that, you know, you, you, that would, that would fit in that song and you wouldn't think twice. Yeah. And again, I mean, I don't know what Bob's, I mean, obviously, as you said, there are examples of him, you know, taking, lines from like a different song and putting it into you know this song here and it it, it totally works i just wonder if he just cleared out the notebook for this (laughs) song and was like i'm gonna put all of this stuff because there's like a lot of good stuff here and it doesn't have to make sense you know but Mm -hmm. i just like all this imagery and it, and, I, and, and if I sing it in a certain way, it'll feel connected. Mm-hmm. Like that, it feels like that kind of song to me. And I get, and so I don't know. You you always like fear that you're over intellectualizing Bob Dylan songs. Like maybe this is just a mess. Mm-hmm. Maybe the song doesn't actually work. But like for me, because I've listened to it so many times, it it again it it, it does work as a song that is willfully chaotic and where the chaos is the message of this song, mm-hmm. I think in, in the end. And, 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 you know, and in a way, you know, I, I, 
it's interesting to me that music critics at the time didn't link this album to his mid sixties records, because I feel like this record is most reminiscent. It, it's more reminiscent of like blonde on blonde than oh, anything, sure. else, yeah, than anything yeah. else he did in the seventies. Yep. Um, obviously, you know, planet waves and uh, blood on the tracks have a, um, you know, those feel more in line, like with the singer songwriter movement that was going on at the mm-hmm. time, you know, certainly blood on the tracks, is you, you can liken that more you you could liken that record to like a jackson brown record mm-hmm. or like a james taylor record right, like a, right, right, right. yeah it slots like fairly comfortably next to that and then Pat you have stevens design, yeah that yeah you know, yeah all exactly guys. yeah where it's uh you know lovelorn songs that uh come from a confessional point of view like it, it seems to fit there better and then desire is this you know sort of uh you know Feels like more like a rock and roll record in a lot of ways, like a tour record. I, you know, uh, obviously the gypsy element, like with Scott Lovera and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, Street Legal, I think just like the wordiness of it. And I think the focus on lyricism, it, it, it just feels more like blonde on blonde to me than like a lot of other stuff that he did in the seventies. And it doesn't seem like people really connected with that aspect of it. You know, again, going back to that Rolling Stone thing that I read, it's almost like they wanted him to do blood on the tracks again, you know, to talk about how you feel like in sure, a more literal yeah. where like blood on the tracks, it feels like a more literal expression mm-hmm. of, of heartache. Whereas, uh, street legal is it's not as overt an expression of heartache i think the heartache is there but there's this, all this other stuff going on it's oh, almost completely. like it's like it's almost like bob's like i'm not going to be as literal on this record i'm gonna sort of replicate the feeling of being alienated with these with the way i write these songs I'm not going to just say I'm alienated. I'm going to make the listener feel alienated by the way I write these songs. Yeah. Which is a very different kind of thing. And I think a trickier type of thing. Um, and maybe people heard it and they're like, this makes you feel alienated. So I don't like it. <laughs> Instead of being like, oh, but maybe he's trying to make you feel that way. You know, he's trying to make you feel the way he feels by the way he's writing these songs. Uh which is why, you know, we appreciate it all these It's easier to appreciate a record like that maybe after the fact than in the moment. In the moment, you just feel bad. But we have the benefit of hindsight. We can be like, oh, Bob was trying to do that. So it makes sense to us many decades after the fact. I find Street Legal uh, to be a very lonely record, despite the fact it's he's got a gaggle of people with him. Blood on the Tracks, to me, is a lonely record, too. But he he's the only one there. I mean, there's other musicians, obviously, but he's the only one singing. But here, especially this song, I mean, good lord, it's a cacophony of people, uh, you know. And yet, to me, it still has it still sounds lonely. I still feel like his singular voice is popping through, despite the fact you've got the the backup singers just wailing away at all these words and stuff like that. But it still puts that it still puts that across. And again, the vocal performance is so good i love the line of the the verse where he says um you know fools making laws for the breaking of jaws right and the sound of the keys of the i love the way the music and the way he punches that fools making laws for the breaking of jaws like it has that kind of and it 
that line, the way he sings it, it feels like a punch in the face. You know, it yeah. feels like your jaws being, it has that feel of like somebody wrapping you in the, in the mouth and knocking your teeth out, which is again, amazing. He can put that across on top of the wall of sound coming from the, the, you know, like the 16 musicians and the backup singers, you know, I mean, it's, it gets, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And I think, you know, we were saying i was saying earlier this song in a way is it sounds reminiscent of desire i think the difference is that the band on street legal is so much tighter so you know there's a looseness to desire which you know it really points the way to rolling thunder It, it, it really feels like desire is not a live record but it feels like a live record in some ways whereas street legal there is like a muscularity to like his band that um you know I think Ian Wallace was playing drums with him at that time and uh, uh was, was it Jerry Chef, like Elvis's bass Elvis player. Elvis's band, yeah, Elvis's player, yeah. Player you mentioned like the backing singers and stuff, like it's it's pretty tight and big and uh it it just has a different feel to it, but as you were saying, it, it doesn't take away from the loneliness of it i think the difference with street legal is that like when you listen to blood on the tracks like you like dylan knows why he's upset you know he understands like i had my heart broken i'm dealing with with romantic heartbreak whereas like the demons of street legal are more existential and uh unseen you know it it's more of like a spiritual type thing like where you can't really put your finger on it. Like, you know, you're upset, but you don't know why. And you, you feel it's almost like a journey to understand, like, why am I feeling this way? And you're on that journey with Dylan on this record. And you don't really find out until the next record why he's upset (laughs) exactly but this is like the confusion but this record you know again the confusion of it which i think is the richness of it why i love it so much but you know again i think maybe in the moment maybe it just sounded uncertain or like he didn't know what he was doing you know like critics might have misinterpreted that as like he's just flailing whereas you can hear it now and be like he's flailing but with purpose you know (laughs) you know I feel like in, with some exceptions, obviously, but I feel like when it comes to his studio records, even, yeah, actually all of the studio records, even the covers records, I feel like the last song on any given album is previewing the next album. Right. Uh, and, and, and that, then, then makes me think, good Lord, the last song on the last record was Murder Most Foul. What does that mean? Uh, or Key West, depending on your point of view, but oh boy. But like, as you say, like the last song on this record completely points to the born again phase i mean completely um and now in terms of um alternate versions of this as far as i know the only um he he did a run through of most of the record for some friends at the studio at rundown studios and um he did a version of this that apparently broke down halfway through and he kind of gave up on it but he kind of played it all for for his friends to say here's kind of what i'm going to be recording um there, as far as I know, there are no other versions. Now, that seems highly unlikely that anything as dense as this was done with one, you know, was, was completed in one take. That seems 
really unlikely. And that goes back to the whole reason why I think street legal as a record is kind of the, um, you know, like the, 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 the pet favorite of the real deep bench Bobcats because it is so, you know, there has been no bootleg series on it. Um, Bob himself has not played a song from this record in more than 10 years. He played senior into the 2000s and he stopped, he uh, stopped playing it in 2011. That's the last time any street legal song has ever been done live. It's the only song that has been performed from street legal in the, in, in this century. Uh, has he ever played no time to think live? No, that has okay. been no, that's the other thing I was going to get to. It has been played zero times live. Now, if you, go to, if you go to YouTube, there is a rehearsal. There is at a sound check. He tries it with the backup singers and uh, it was done in Sweden. And again, you, it's not the whole song, obviously. And it sounds, it's so far away. It sounds like somebody was recording it from the parking lot uh, with the door to the concert hall open and they stuck a mic in there. It is so far away, but you can hear him. You can hear him. You can hear them singing, you know, no time to think. So he was, he considered it. Uh, obviously it never went anywhere because it was, it's been played zero times live. So that's another reason why so many of these songs have never been done live. And the couple of ones that have been were done on that Budokan tour and a little bit after, and that's it. And there's only been, uh, he did, we better talk this over in 2000. And then, as I said, senior in 2011, but that's it. So this, this is not only has Sony kind of not given it deluxe treatment, but Bob himself seemingly has kind of just forgotten about it. Uh, and that, I think that's another reason why the fans are like, I really love this record. It's like, why does it, why does it seem so unloved by both the record company and the man himself? I think that's part of the reason why it's, it's people, you know, holding so close to their hearts. Well, you think, you know, Blood on the Tracks obviously has a lot of standards on it. Desire has Hurricane on it. Uh, even, you know, Slow Train Coming has got to serve somebody. Yep. You know, there's no, real breakout song from no. Street Legal. It feels like a little bit of like an orphan in, in that regard, so I totally get it. It would be hilarious if they, if Sony announced we're going to do a Street Legal box set. You know, oh, like, can I, you imagine? I I'll never love, do that, but I would, yeah. I, I would love that, but it's like talk about you know, having no commercial appeal. I, yeah. mean, <laughs> I mean, the fact that they've done like Christian like the Christian period in like the eighties, I mean, is pretty amazing, you know, that they would even do that. You know, if uh, they can do a whole bootleg series to self devoted to self portrait, I think you can do street legal. Frankly. Yeah. But I think even, even self portrait though, it's still connected to the sixties. I, I mm. feel like any kind of sixties, Bob, that's true. That's is going true. to have a different kind of thing. I, I mean, look, I think, there's going to be a long tail of Bob Dylan box sets. I, oh yeah, I'm sure at some point they'll do some sort of street legal thing, um, and I'll be first in line to pick yep. that up. Uh, but I wouldn't hold my breath about that. It, 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 that's definitely for like the deep heads, yeah, you know, out there. I could see it getting paired with like the Desire sessions or something, you know, like put it together like that, you know, like okay, two records. That that they're not going to so get the separate, though. series. Yeah, well, I yeah. mean, I mean, I you know, I wonder. Like, I would love to to hear like a '78 tour mm-hmm. box set. I mean, I love the Budokan record, but that's you know pretty early in that tour. If you could like 
do something like with the Paris shows from July of 78 mm. or, you know, it seems like later in the tour, it came together in a different kind of way than it did early on. Um, and then maybe you could put some street legal stuff in there. Uh, maybe that would be the way to do it. I mean, cause I love that 78 tour. I mean, that I kind of wonder to what degree, like the, the at Budokan record, because I think that came that came up before Street Legal, I believe, didn't it? I think it was after. Was it after? Yeah, it was okay. after. Yeah. Okay. Because he I, had some I, Street Legal songs on there. I don't. I, are there Street Legal songs on that book? I thought it was yep. like all like like what what Street Legal songs are on that record? I think. Oh God, someone I'm going to get it wrong, and someone's going to be like, "You idiot!" But I I'm pretty sure like "Is Your Love in Vain" is on there. I think. Okay, because I thought it was all, I, I thought it was like a greatest hits record, but like radically redone. Cause like, like cause I, when I was reading about, like when I was a kid learning about Dylan at Budokan was like just the biggest piece of shit. After, oh yeah, like, it was savage. He, yeah. They called just, it the alimony tour. They were really, yeah, really rough on him. Just murdered it. And I mean, I love at Budokan now. I think that's like, there's, even like the arrangements that seem crazy to me, like I really like, like I, they're, you know, like what's, uh, uh, what's the song they do is like a reggae song. Is it, is it blown in the wind or they do, uh, the, they do don't think twice. It's all right. Uh, yeah, it's a reggae song. <laughs> yeah. And, and then like Mr. Tambourine man has that like flute on it. Oh my God. That's you know, a... which is crazy. <laughs> Yeah, it's like it's an insane version. Yeah, it's like so jaunty. It is. Hey, Mister Tambourine. But I kind of love it, you know. I I do too. It's so crazy. uh, I feel like my impression when I was a kid is that like Street Legal and At Budokan were tied together, and that that was At Budokan in some way like almost like hurt Street Legal because people Mm. just looked at it as this like weird. Vegasy period for Dylan or something. Yeah. By the way, I whew, I was I am correct. Is is your love in vain? Is on Budokan. It's the only song from Street Legal. Okay, on there. But it is it is kind of like a greatest hits package. It's right. Times are changing. Forever young. Knocking on heaven's door. Maggie's farm. Tambourine man. Yeah. Uh, like a Rolling Stone. It's. I mean, I feel like that album was the beginning of like what we consider. You know, like of Dylan, like radically rearranging his songs yeah. like, which we're used to now but i feel like that record it seems like it was the first instance of that certainly like on a live album type thing like where people were like what the fuck like these <laughs> versions are like not what i'm used to from dylan and uh because like you know before the flood isn't that different i mean they're you know, I don't know. Like, late, late, late. I mean, the, it's, not, I mean the, you know. it's not as radical as at Budokan. At Budokan, no, it's well, that's like, true. Yes, yes. You know, uh, <laughs> just taking it in a totally bonkers direction. <laughs> Which, again, like, we hear it now and we're like, oh, that's that's our Bobby. Bobby's being crazy. We that's what it. he does. Yeah. That's what we do. That's we what love he it. He does. Yep. Exactly. Completely. Well, <laughs> I, well, I mean, Stephen, I feel like we could go on a hell of a lot longer, but we're already at, at 90 minutes. And, uh, and, and so this, you'll have to come back another time. We'll just pick another song and then we'll just talk about other related Bob things because, uh, that's just the sort of the nature of, I think, talking to a, a music critic. You had a lot of thoughts. And so, uh, I really appreciate you coming by to talk about, uh, this song. I'm always happy to, to knock off another song from Street Legal. 
Um, especially someone that is, I, I admire your guts taking, taking this huge bite off of the <laughs> song. Uh, no time to think, but, uh, but again, thank you for, for, for doing this. Hey, my pleasure. As I'm sure I've demonstrated, I love talking about Bob Dylan. So pleasure's <laughs> all mine. So, uh, before we sign off, I have to ask you the standard exit question, which is if there's any album of Bob's that you could sit in on the sessions on, uh, what one would it be? Ooh. And I will expand that question, by the way, to include live records. Like you could, you know, would you want to have been on the tour when they recorded this record? I will. That's part of it because you're talking about Budokan. I would count that as well. Any, any record he ever put out, would you, what one would you want to have been where they recorded it, whether it was live or in the studio or not? You know, I don't know. I mean, I could be cute here and come up with some clever answer, but I mean, who wouldn't want to be in Nashville in early 66 mm-hmm. and seeing, Bob lay down blonde on blonde. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, look, I could say, yeah, I'd like to see him do knocked out loaded because that record <laughs> is so fucking crazy. I'd, I'd like to be around for that, but no, I mean, I want to be a, you know, I want to be in Nashville and see blonde on blonde. I want to hang out at big pink and see and shoot the shit while they're doing the basement tapes. You know, these are the very boring answers. I want to be there like when they do ro- like a Rolling Stone, you know, like very boring answers, but come on. It's like, you don't have to be, I, I can't be interesting here. I have to go for like the big heavy hitters here. I want to be a big pink or I want to be in Nashville in like 1966 uh, because it's like the greatest music ever made. So yeah, I, I, I would pick one of those for sure. All right. Okay. It's no wrong answer. It's just, uh, you know, I just finally, I'm going like... with the boring answer. I feel, I feel like, Oh, I'm not, I'm not being uh, creative enough with that. No, but, no, no. It's... But at the end of the day, you know, the obvious answers are obvious for a reason. Yeah. You know? So I'm going with the obvious stuff. It's meant, it's meant to be, it's meant to be uh, revealing about, about you. It's not meant to be creative or anything. Just it, yes. it is what it is. It is what it is. So what I'm revealing is that I like blonde on blonde and the basement tapes, which, okay. uh, you know, is very out of character for a Bob Dylan fan. But, yes. Uh, exactly. You know, I'm, I'm guilty as charged. Hot take. Uh, so well, again, Stephen, thank you so much for doing this. This was absolutely terrific to talk to you. So why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the internet? So you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Stephen underscore Hayden. Uh, you can also find my books at anywhere you buy books. And uh, I have a book coming out in September uh, called Long Road, Pearl Jam and the Soundtrack of a Generation. So I would appreciate it if you would pre-order that, if you are so inclined. Otherwise, yeah, that's about it. All right. Very cool. Very cool. And again, maybe give everybody, pick up the Pearl Jam book uh, before Bob's book comes out a couple months later. You want to get, you know, separate- yes. Yes, we had it like a month, so you can like save. You can buy my book. You got, you can save up then and buy Bob's book. Exactly, exactly. So, <laughs> see, I'm. I don't mean to make light of it because now I'm terrified that Bob is going to start a podcast, and that's just going to because it's like it's unlikely, but it also was unlikely that he would write a book or host a radio show. You know exactly. what I mean? So it's like, who the hell knows? So for all we know, that's what he's working on, and. God, I hope that doesn't happen. Uh, so anyway, uh, of course, you can find back episodes of this show on our website, finewaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on any podcatcher of your choice. And then finally, if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, go to patreon.com slash FW Podcast. 
There you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. So big thanks to Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Max Hustle, George Doherty, Joaquin Meckel, Paul Ruther, Henry Bernstein for their support of Pod Dylan. And one last thing. I don't only, I generally don't like to like do uh, relentless plugs here on the show, but I will say that I have a, uh, I designed a new Pod Dylan t-shirt. For the oldest time, for the longest time, we just had the regular shirt with just the show logo, which I always thought kind of a little on the dull side. But I designed a new shirt, and I'm kind of proud of it. I it was it was fun to sit and design it, and now it's on for sale on my Etsy store. I have an Etsy store. It's under Rob Kelly Creative, along with all my other stuff, and we'll have a link in the show notes to it. So if you want to support the show uh, in a different way than, say, Patreon, uh, and you get something in return, Go to my Etsy store and buy the shirt. It's available in white and in black. Uh, that's going to do it again. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. Before the late 19th century, timekeeping was a local phenomenon. Each town would set their town clock to noon when the sun reached its highest point in the day. A clockmaker, or town clock, would be the official time, and citizens would set their official pocket watches and clocks to the time of the town. Enterprising citizens would serve as mobile clock setters, carrying a watch to people's homes to adjust them to the town's time. When you travel from the city to city, you'd have to change your pocket watch upon arrival. 